turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 6 and find verse 25. That's where we will begin today. While you're turning there, have you ever heard this before? I want Jesus, but I don't want theology. Or, I want Jesus, but not all that doctrine. Um, Anybody ever heard that before, either from a friend or just that that is kind of a common cultural uh, thought in our culture today? People are turned off from the idea of doctrine that you have to hold to. And I've heard this lo a lot of times in the past, but I heard it in a video that I was watching this week as well. Um, here's, what, here's what happens if you don't have doctrine or theology. People come to conclusions that are off from what we know to be true in Scripture. And so um, this video that I watched here, I'm just, I'm just going to list a, a handful of them. But here are some things that people have concluded, most likely because they have avoided doctrine and theology and they just believe whatever they want to believe about God. And that's been affirmed by friends who also don't want to have anything to do with theology or doctrine. So here's... Here's one. God is non-binary. God is queer. God is autistic. That was one of the people in the video. That's what they, what they believed. Another one uh, said, The entirety of Jesus' gospel was about making heaven manifest on earth, not about humans escaping earth to get to some place called heaven. Um, by the way, all of these can be refuted with scripture. Uh, another one said, original sin does not exist. Because if, you know, they need to believe that we're not inherently evil, because if we're inherently evil, then we need a Savior. But if we're inherently good, then we don't need a Savior. And then the last one I'm going to mention, there were more in this video, but the last one said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, the most historically reliable Gospels do not contain any claims of Jesus saying he is God or claiming to be divine. Now, all of those, we could go to Scripture and we could say all of those are wrong. Um, but that's what happens when you don't hold to doctrine, you don't care about theology, and you don't have anything that's holding you accountable to any kind of truth claim. So our text for today has examples of people in three different stages of their understanding of God and his truth. Um, so we're going to look at all three of those people or groups of people, and then we're going to um, look at how, they, how some of those people went from uh, people who followed God to people who worshiped false gods. And a lot of it has to do with this very thing, not holding to doctrine or theology. Let's look at our text. Starting in verse 25, if you're able to stand, would you stand with us to honor God as we read his word? 25 to 32 is what we're looking at today. Um, so prior to this, the angel of the Lord came. We know that that was God himself speaking with Gideon. Um, and God tells him he's going to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of Midian. 
Gideon realizes that he's seen God. Um, he's afraid he's going to die. God says, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord. And then this is what we pick up with in 25. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his, his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubbaal that, that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have your word that we can look at and we can study and we can go back to it time and time again uh, to read it and to take it in and to allow your spirit to teach us through it. And so this morning I pray that he would and I pray that we would um, gain some insight into you and into who you are and into our relationship with you, our, our new status as people who are saved, um, but also to be able to look at these other situations where there, are, where there are people who are cut off from you in the text, and we see it in, in our own culture and world today, and those people need to know you. So show us how to, uh, how to take the truth to them um, so that they can hear how they can be saved and come to know you. Um, in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, the first point in your, t in your notes today is, comes from verses 25 to 27, and it is standing with the Lord of truth. Um, the, the title of the sermon I put on your notes is, Will You Stand with the Lord of Truth? But as I thought through this some today, um, I could have very easily also titled it something like, to whom or to what will you surrender? Because that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, who it is that has control of your life. So as we look at verses 25 to 27, we see an example of someone who is standing um, with the Lord or surrendered to the Lord. Um, 
So I told you that before this, our text starts in verse 25, God had consumed Gideon's offering with fire. He reached out with the staff and touched it and it consumed the offering. Um, and that provided Gideon with what he wanted to know. What he wanted to know in that early part of chapter 6 as he was conversing with the Lord is, is it really you, God, calling me to this task of delivering Israel from Midian? And so God consumes the offering and it, and it reveals to him that it is God. Um, that's, when he, that's why he exclaims, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Um, and so he, he has that confirmed for him, that God really is the one calling him. But Gideon is obviously still hesitant and fearful. And so what God is going to do is he's going to walk him through a process that as he seeks more and more confirmation, God's going to go through this process with him to, to confirm one thing after another with him. And so he knows now that it is God, but he needs to know that there, there's, this, there's this fear in him, and we'll get into this more um, next week when we get into the rest of chapter 6, but um, there's still this fear in him that he, that he needs to know that God is going to actually help him accomplish the task. He knows it's God calling him, now he needs to know, like, my heart needs to know that you are actually going to be with me as I do this. And you got to remember, Midian's army is huge. So Gideon is being called to deliver Israel out of an army that is a massive army that Israel doesn't have enough people in their nation necessarily to take on this army. And so I don't know about you, but if I was Gideon, even if I knew that God had promised that he was going to make me successful, I would probably still have some questions. I'd, there are still details that I would want to know, um, like exactly how are you going to do this? I'd like to know the battle plan. Um, is this going to look like the walls of Jericho falling down? Or is it going to look like me striking down 600 people with an ox goad? Am I going to have any help? Are you calling me, or are you calling me to lead some people? You know, so I would have lots of questions, I think, still, uh, just because I, I like to know the battle plan going in. Um, but I, so I don't know what was going on in Gideon's mind at the time, but this mighty warrior is still fearful somewhat. So God is going to confirm in his heart that there's nothing he needs to be afraid of, and We'll get into that more, I said, uh, next week when we get into the testing with the wool fleece. Um, but for the time being, God is going to call Gideon to another task. It's a smaller task, but it's one that is going to require faith to make a bold statement that is going to be countercultural. Gideon's father has an altar to sacrifice to the Canaanite god Baal. He, God instructs Gideon to tear down the altar that his father's built, to cut down the Asherah pole that's next to it, which is also part of that uh, the worship of a false god, to build a proper altar to the Lord and to sacrifice one of his father's bulls on it as a burnt offering. And Gideon is afraid of his family, and he's afraid of the townspeople. So even though he is obedient, he needs to be commended for being obedient, but even though he's obedient, 
we need to see that like he's still afraid and so he does this under the cover of night which reminds me i don't know if it reminds you but my mind went instantly to nicodemus in john chapter 3 where nicodemus wanted to speak with jesus about some of his teachings and kind of pick his brain a little bit but he goes at night which is not not typical whenever we whenever we have something that seems out of the ordinary in the text there's usually some reason for that and my guess is this is just speculation but my guess is gideon or sorry uh, nicodemus was fearful that the other jewish leaders would see him talking to jesus trying to learn from him and that's what gideon does here he goes because of his fear he does obey but but he's he goes under the cover of night and so what we see what we're watching happen as the story unfolds is we're watching gideon learn to trust god and allow god to have complete say in what he's going to do complete say in his life he's learning to surrender his will over to the will of the lord and it's not an easy thing those of you in here who are control freaks like me know how difficult it is to just let go of your life and allow someone else to be in control of it gideon is learning through this step-by-step -step process to trust god more so he is one who is standing with god who's surrendering himself to god your second point in your notes as we get into verses 28 to 20, 28 to 30 is standing in opposition to the Lord of truth. And so we see a group of people who are standing in opposition to God. They're rejecting him. And we're going we're gonna to look at the townspeople here. I want you to look at their response. So they wake up in the morning and they go outside and they see that the altar has been torn down and the asherah pole has been cut down and there's been a different altar built with a sacrifice with the wood from the asherah pole and they're so angry that they're ready to kill gideon for what he's done now it seems a little extreme to me um but Here's, here's the thing. Gideon has now threatened their idol. Gideon has threatened their idol. And I've shared this with you before. Um, there's a great book about, about identifying idols in your life by Brad Bigney. A book called Gospel Treason. If you've never read it, you should. Um, I've got a copy in my office if you need to borrow it. One of the main, one of the things he talks about in the book, and one of the main indicators in our life that we might have an idol that we're worshiping is that we are willing to sin to get it, or we respond with sin when we don't get it. So we all have idols in our heart. Some of them we don't even know we have. But you'll if you start noticing, I'm willing to be unchristlike 
go against something that God has said in order to get this thing that I want so badly, or if I don't get it and my response is a very unchristlike response, then you're dealing with an idol in your heart. And the reason why those are indicators is because the, the idol has control of your heart. Um, you've allowed that particular thing or that particular person or that particular uh, concept in your thinking to sit on the throne of your heart. So that could be a physical thing. Like, you know, if I'm willing to cheat on my taxes so that I have more money in my bank account, then I've just made wealth or, or money an idol that I'm willing to sin, break laws to do, to, to gain. Um, or it could be a non-physical thing. Um, you know, somebody injures my pride so guess what? Payback is coming. Um, so it could be something like that. It could even be a righteous thing that you have turned into an idol in your life. Um, I use this example a lot when I'm trying to explain this to people. I want my kids to be well-behaved, but when they're not well-behaved, like in public especially, do I get angry with them because they've sinned? Or do I get angry with them because they've embarrassed me in front of everyone and now everyone's going to think that I'm failing as a parent? So what's the motivation behind my anger? Is it the sin or is it my pride and my, my desire to be looked at as a good parent? So having well-behaved kids is a great thing to want. It's a God-honoring thing to have or to desire. But if it becomes an idol, you will sin to get it or you will respond with sin if you don't get it. So in Gideon's day, the townspeople were so angry that he destroyed the altar that was built to their idol that they were ready to, to take his life. These were people who had abandoned the teachings, the doctrine, the law of God, and they'd run after something that was false, and they don't like it when you take it away from them. All right, point number three is standing on neutral ground. As we get into verses 31 and 32, we have an example of somebody who's trying to be neutral. And that's Gideon's father. His name is Joash. He, like many in Israel at the time, was a product of the culture around him. Many of those in Israel had been influenced by the pagan worship of Baal. But I will say this. He doesn't seem to be totally devoted to either Yahweh, the God of Israel, or to Baal, the God of the Canaanite nations. He's not fully surrendered either way. Um, he's sort of playing this, this position of neutrality. He's, he's trying to have one foot in both camps straddling the line. If he, he's not completely devoted to Yahweh because if he was, he would not have an altar to sacrifice to Baal. And the text tells us that it's his. It says... God tells Gideon in verse 25, 
tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. And so it is his father's altar that he has built to this false god. So if he was totally devoted to Yahweh, he wouldn't have that. And if he was completely devoted to Baal, I doubt he would have taken so lightly the destruction of his altar and the Asherah pole and taking a, a, one of his own bulls from, from his um, herd to sacrifice as a burnt offering. He does, however, propose one of the most logical challenges that I've ever heard to people who don't believe in God or people who don't believe God is sovereign. This is, I, I think this is, this is brilliant. When the people are like going to kill his son and, and it's all in response to him destroy, getting destroying this altar to Baal, he says, if Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. Verse 31. So he's playing this game where he's got his foot, one foot in each camp, and he's, I don't know if he can't decide who he's going to worship or what, but he's trying to stand neutral here. And here's the problem. The problem with standing on neutral ground is that there is no such thing as neutral ground when it comes to truth and when it comes to God. Matthew 12, 30, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus is real clear. That's one example, and I can point to them in every single book of the Bible. Most, of, most chapters of the Bible have examples of how there is, there is, you are on the side of God or you are not, and there's no standing in the middle. Jesus does not say, partially with me is better than none with me, you know, so if you're on your way, he didn't say that. So to be less than fully surrendered to Christ is to stand in opposition to him. There, there's going to be a significant percentage of people in hell who just tried to stay neutral concerning Jesus because something else demanded their devotion, whether that's a cultural mindset or some physical pleasure that they would not deny themselves. Jesus is really clear. Whoever is not with me is against me. If you, if you try to stand and straddle the line and be partially for me and partially with this other thing or other person, the reality is, the truth is, you're not with me at all. So those are the three positions that we see in this text, someone who's fully, who, who's learning to surrender to God, someone or a group of people who stand in opposition to him, and someone who's trying to play it neutral, but in reality is standing in opposition to him. Now, I want to go through as we, as we, this isn't the conclusion, but as we kind of conclude coming out of those three things, I want to go through what is a transition from righteousness to sinfulness that we see take place, and we're seeing this happen in the period of the judges, and we're seeing it happen in our own time today, in our own culture. There is a process of moving from righteousness to sinfulness in your life, 
to move from moving from a, mi- a, a godly mindset to a sinful or, or fleshly or worldly mindset. And it could be righteousness and sinfulness of thinking or action. But there are six steps that go that they go through. It starts off being being in a godly mindset or being in a, a righteous uh, lifestyle. Um, and so it's the first one is no participation in sin. So when you're in that mindset, the, the idea is to, is to have nothing to do with sin. The Israelites were instructed to drive the pagan nations out of the land, and if they had obeyed, then the sinful practices of those nations would have been out of their sight. If they'd driven them out like they were supposed to, they wouldn't be surrounded by all of this stuff. The Israelite community would have been a community that was able to cut themselves off from that and be fully devoted to God. In John 17, 14, this is uh, Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He says this, I've given them your word and the word, sorry, I've given you them your word and the world has hated them and they are, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. And so that's where we get this idea of being in the world because we have to be, but not being of the world. We can't completely cut ourselves off from living in a sinful world, but we are called to not be like the world in its sinfulness. And so as Israel had come in, if they'd driven them out, they could have isolated themselves from those influences and only been influenced by God's law. The Apostle Paul stated in 2 Corinthians 6.14, For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And Paul also tells Timothy to guard his life and his doctrine closely. And so the first stage is where you are in right relationship with God. You have a godly mindset. Uh, righteous, uh, righteousness is a description of your life. You're separating yourself off from the, the world and its practices. But then you transition to the next stage, which is tolerating sin from a distance. The reason the Israelites were supposed to drive the pagan nations out of the land was so that those nations couldn't influence God's people. And that was something God told them uh, long before this when Moses was leading them. In Exodus 23, verse 33, he says, Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. So God had warned them, If you don't drive them out completely, and separate yourselves off from them, they will influence you to sin against me. But they didn't drive them out completely. So they remained this presence among God's people. Now, they were, they were initially either enslaved or, or they were driven out of a place where, is, where one of the tribes was settling. But it was, it was in sight. It was in view. And so the Israelites, they might not have initially engaged in that pagan, those pagan religious practices, but they tolerated it being nearby. 
because it was at a distance still. You know, everything will be fine as long as you stay over there with your own people. So they began to tolerate it being near them. Third stage of moving away from a godly mindset to a sinful mindset is getting more acquainted with sin. Eventually, they, they might have been, you know, over there, but eventually you get to know your neighbors. Most people don't stay in the confines of their house or their community because God's created us to be relational beings. I say most people because I do know some introverts who would be just fine never leaving the house and uh, just keeping to themselves. But most people engage with the, the neighbors around them. So when people live near us, eventually, you know, we begin to do things like visit. They might stop by and talk to you. They might be walking their dog and talk to you while you're out doing yard work. You might have, the, the Israelites might have had people who were doing business transactions with uh, foreign nations. They might have had people from those foreign nations who even offered a helping hand here and there when there was a need. And as we get more acquainted with someone or something, as we see that the people who engage in such evil practices can be nice people and maybe even fun to hang around, we begin to let down our guard against those things that we know are sinful. Because after all, I mean, he's a good guy, right? He's always there to help anytime I need something. But then you move to the next stage, which is becoming friends with sin. If you hang out with someone enough and you develop a close friendship, then eventually their mindset and their life choices begin to influence your thinking. Because you began to let down your guard in the previous stage of your relationship, the way you process truth and reality begins to change. I've seen people who have changed what they believe God's word says because they have a family member or a friend who lives in a way that's in opposition to what God says and they don't they don't know how to reconcile those two things. They don't know how to, how to lovingly tell the person that it's wrong that what they're doing. And so they just change what they think God's word says. If God's word can just be changed by your emotions and your feelings, it's not, it's not worth following at all. But that's what happens when you, be, you become friends with sin those things begin to influence the way you think and the way you process truth and reality. You may, not be, you may not completely abandon what you know to be true, but you begin to question what you were told about the sinful practices of the people who have now become your friends. You begin to reason. Maybe it isn't as bad as we were told. I mean, after all, the person, this person who's become a really good friend of mine engages in that. They think that way. They practice those things. So you begin, to, you begin to make compromises. 
you might even compare them to people who are still in the first stage, people who are faithful. You might even compare them to them, and you might find that these people are nicer than the people who have who've remained faithful. I, how many times have you heard someone say, these people over here who, don't, who aren't Christians are much nicer and more compassionate and loving toward people than the people that I know who go to church? Anybody, anybody heard that before? That's one of the biggest complaints of our culture. And that often leads us to conclude that we would, would rather be with the compassionate, sinful people than the righteous who lack compassion and kindness. I'm not saying lacking compassion and kindness is right, but this seems more pleasant to deal with. And then you move into the next stage, number five, ignoring the counsel of loved ones. Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. James 5.19, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. With each step away from godliness, you usually have loved ones who are, who are warning you of the dangers of letting down your guard. But as someone progresses further and further away from that godly mindset, and the more they engage in sin, the more they ignore that counsel or even distance themselves from those who try to restore them in the Lord. Which then leads to the final step, becoming intimate with sin. With every step in the process, the heart and the mind become more and more desensitized to sin, and finally they surrender themselves to that sin and their life becomes devoted to that idol they worship. Their mindset has completely shifted from godly thinking to worldly thinking, and mindset directs action and lifestyle. The way we think affects and directs the way we live. All right. In the intro, I asked if you'd ever heard people say that they want Jesus but not theology or doctrine. It's the theology and the doctrine that keep us grounded in the truth of God's word. And the reality is you cannot separate Jesus from theology because he's the very manifestation of what's true. Kevin DeYoung is a well-known commentator, pastor. He was talking about this in this video that I watched, and he said this. He said, as soon as you start to say something about Jesus, like for the people who, people who say, I want Jesus, I just don't want theology or doctrine. As soon as you start to say anything about Jesus, you've gone into the realm of theology. So folks, he said, so folks who think, I want Jesus, not theology, they don't have idols. And that's what's happening time after time after time in Judges. They've drifted away from the truth of what God revealed to them about himself. They've let the cultures around them define what is true rather than God and his law defining what is true. They've changed, that, that then has changed their thinking, which is their theology, and that in turn changed their life and their behavior. And that's no different than what we see in our own culture today. It's all around us. 
So, I'll leave you with this. Every person of every generation is faced with a question. And that's this question. And we have to ask ourselves every day, even if we've surrendered and we're saved, sur surrendered to Christ and we're saved, we, we have to ask ourselves this question every day because it affects how we live. And here's the question. What am I going to do with Jesus? Every person in every generation who's ever been, who's ever walked the earth has to ask this question. What am I going to do with Jesus? Will he be Lord of my life? Will I surrender to him? Or will he not be Lord of my life? And will I surrender to something or someone else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you you do not share your glory with anyone or anything else. That we have truth that's been revealed to us, but also that you demand full surrender to, to you and what is true. But that is bad news for so many people in our culture. It's not only bad news for people who are non-Christians, it's not just bad news for people who stand on neutral ground that try to just be neutral when it comes to you. It's also bad for those who are part of the church who have followed these steps and drifted away from a godly mindset, and we're seeing that more and more as well. So my prayer is for two things, Lord. First, that you would help us to know how to fully surrender to you. Give us, like, we it's not going to be natural for us, so we're going to need your help. Your spirit guiding us and directing us, we're going to need him to help us to surrender to you. But that is, that is what we have, that is what we've agreed to when we accepted your, your offer of salvation. We no longer are the ones in charge of our lives. We surrender our will over to you. But the other thing is that we need your help to know how to take that same message to those who have not done it yet, who have not surrendered to you, or to those who have but are drifting away from you. And to be bold and to go before them and say, I love you too much to let you continue down a path of destruction. You need to know truth, and it's found in Christ, and you need to surrender to him. And so help us to be those people that are fully surrendered and to help others to do the same so that they can come to know you and be 